Well, good morning, good morning, and happy Easter. There is a kind of uh, traditional Easter greeting that we of the faith do every Easter, and it goes something like this. I say he is risen, and you say he is risen indeed. And because it's Easter and we love tradition, I think we should do it at least once. So he is risen. Amen. It is an exciting, exciting season. I always love when Easter comes around because we get to dive into what I believe is one of the most incredible stories in all of history. And we get to walk into this tension of this story that without this story, none of the rest of the things that we do as a church make sense. And so we dive into this story, but I was struck by this as I was thinking about uh, this story. I was thinking about all of the amazing things that happen in the story that we're going to talk about today. And I was struck by this fact that we kind of live in an era, in a time where we hear amazing stories all the time. And because of the information overload that we have, because we see so much data and so many stories, we have learned to become pretty skeptical when we hear a story that sounds too good to be true. So for some of you today, when I talk about the Easter story, you have a certain measure of skepticism. Some of you have read too much Facebook news or Twitter news or comments and your instinctive reaction when a story doesn't line up with your immediate worldview is to go fake news. Fake news, right? And you got to put your hand like this or it's not really fake news, right? Fake news. And you hear stories and you think, man, I wonder if that's really true. And then we also have this thing called email. And on our email, we get blasted with things that are oftentimes ridiculous. This is a true email that I received Saturday, April 15th at 2.40 a.m. Dear sir, I won't read the whole thing. My name is Benson Ebo, and I have a client who is da-da-da-da-da. I am contacting you to assist me in repatriating the fund, which is valued at $11 million U.S., the mentioned amount is still in the bank. So I'm writing this email message due to the urgent need to invest this fund in your recommended investment. After you make a claim of it, kindly write me back so we may discuss the further discuss further on these possibilities. Sorry, the grammar's not perfect. Kindly include your private email address and telephone number. <laughs> Did you know I'm I'm ready to repatriate 11 million dollars? That's exciting, right? We live in an era of fake news and scams, and we are constantly required to engage our intellect and engage our minds to process what's true, what's real, and what's not true. And here's another thing that's just true about us. We like a good story. We like a good story, and a good story sometimes has a tendency to get better over time and become a great story. So today, I, uh, this morning before first service, I was tying my tie, putting my tie on, and, and the worship team was commenting, I don't always wear a tie, and they were asking if I knew how to tie a tie. <clears throat> yeah. So I was remembering, the first time I learned how to tie a tie, I was 16 years old, and I had gotten a job at Safeway. And back then at Safeway, you wore a tie to work, even if you were just a cart pusher and a grocery bagger. And so I got a job at 16 at Safeway, and I had to wear a tie, but I didn't know how to tie a tie. I knew how to buy a tie, but I didn't know how to tie a tie. So I showed up for my first day of work. I got my white shirt on and my ties just draped over my neck. And there was a guy there who was in charge of training me. And he said, how come you don't have your tie on? And I was like, well, I don't know how to tie my tie. And he's like, oh, I'll show you, right? And so he became a friend of mine. And he was showing me how to tie my tie. Now, he was a nice guy, but unfortunately, well, not fortunately, but he was kind of a storyteller. And, and I remember I would talk to him, he was training me, and he would tell me stories, adventures in his life and things that he had done. And it was funny because he would forget that he had told me a story and then he would tell the story again, only the story would get better with each telling and it would get better and it would get better and it would better. But we all do that with stories. I had a great story just a couple weeks ago. I was uh, at opening day for the Mariners. So when was that? Like a week ago or whatever, right? It was a great story. We had great free tickets. We were able to sit in a really great spot. And I got a fly ball, a legit fly ball, right? It says opening day on it and everything. It's an amazing story, right? But I had to be careful because I'm telling the story. And every time I tell a story, I want to just, it's a little more exciting. And, and however excited you are, I get more excited. And I have to rein it back in and be like, well, here's what actually happened. Actually, my hand was all bruised. I did catch it legit, though. Come on, didn't hit the ground or anything, right? 
I think the crowd went wild. That's how I remember it. But, <laughs> right? But we have a tendency to tell the stories and they get better with time and our memories fade. So we get to this story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's easy in a culture that's instinctively cynical, that's instinctively looking for fake news or looking to kind of poke holes in stories that seem too amazing, too great, to look at it and just go, well, you know, over time, a great story became an epic story and an epic story became a legend and a legend became more of a fable and then eventually we have this incredible story but 2,000 years have gone by and if I had a good story for 2,000 years it would get better and better and better and better and better and so we struggle sometimes as we walk in to this story and so I feel that pressure but at the same time I also know that if you were to walk into my office knock on the door, say, hey, Pastor Mike, I'm just struggling with this whole Jesus thing. This is the story I would talk with you about. This is the story I would take you to. This is the story that engages my mind and engages our intellect and engages our heart. This is the story that we connect our hope to. This is the story. So it's important that we know this story and that we walk through the facts of this story. But here's the thing. We need some evidence. If we're going to believe something from 2,000 years ago, we need some evidence. So my hope today is to present you with some evidence, to reintroduce you to the story, and then just simply invite you to do what I did, to connect my hope to his story. And so before we do that, we got to walk through what the Easter story is, what actually happened. And I'm going to give you just a short timeline according to the scriptures of the story of Easter. We know about the death of Jesus and we got all the way up to the cross. But look at what happens immediately after that according to the four authors that give us the history of Jesus. We know that early, early on Sunday morning, Christ rose from the dead. That's Matthew 28 verse 2. We also know that immediately after that, the reason we know that is the Marys walked to the tomb and found it empty. They found an empty tomb. We know from Luke that Peter and John were the next two on the scene and they arrived at the empty tomb. We know that they leave having not seen Jesus. And after that, Jesus appeared to Mary and she had an interaction with him. After that, as we piece together the timeline, the next thing that we see after, after that, Mark 16, is that the women go back and tell the disciples, hey, they've seen Jesus, but we know the disciples do not believe them. That's critical. Matthew tells us that the Roman guards who were assigned to guard the tomb, this was a political prisoner. His body could not go missing. Find the empty tomb and they don't have an answer for it. So they meet with the temple court and they're bribed to cover it up. Later, Luke says that Cleopas and his friends who were disciples of Jesus were walking on the road and Jesus appeared to them. They went and told the rest of the disciples, but again, the disciples did not believe them. Finally, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to the 10 of the disciples. Now, this is important. Thomas wasn't there. Judas obviously wasn't there. A week later, Jesus appears again on a Sunday and this time Thomas sees him and believes and about two weeks after that, Jesus appears to the disciples and he's got a fish lunch on the side of the beach and he interacts with Peter in the famous interaction with Peter. Now, why did you walk through that? Because I want us all to know these are the claims that the scriptures ask us to believe about what happens after the death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus. So I want to take us into the story. As I, as I attempt to convince you about the authenticity of the story, there's there's something so critical that we grasp here because everything in our faith hangs on this. And so let's talk about who are the authors for just a moment. Who are we looking at to tell us this story? Who are we putting our trust in to tell us this story? We know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew is an interesting guy. Matthew was a tax collector by trade, which tells us he was essentially wealthy. You could not be a tax collector and not be wealthy at that time. In order to be a tax collector, you had to purchase that position from Rome. 
As a matter of fact, people, it's tax season right now, so everybody's sensitive about tax collectors, right? People of that culture hated tax collectors with a passion. They hated them so much that if you read the Bible, this is a funny thing to do. As you read through the scripture, whenever tax collectors are mentioned, it'll say tax collectors and sinners. They hated them so much, they would not lump tax collectors in with the rest of sinners. They had a special category for tax collectors, okay? Because tax collectors purchased the right to tax their neighbors in their neighborhood. And how they would do it is they'd go to Marshall and say, hey, you, you owe Rome $100, but we're going to collect $150 today. And Marshall would say, well, wait, I only owe $100. And I would say, yeah, but you owe $150 because I need $50. And you say, well, I don't have $50. Cool, I'm going to throw you in jail, and now your wife owes $150. But we've been neighbors our whole life. Yeah, I don't care. It's going to be 175 if she can't come up with it by the end of the week. Otherwise, we'll just throw your whole family in jail. That's who the tax collectors were in that culture. So when you see Matthew following Jesus, the transformation from one of the most hated subcultures in the entire world at that time into a follower of Jesus who had been affluent at one point, who was a Jew ethnically, writing this story so that he could capture the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. That's Matthew. He writes the story. Mark writes down an account of Jesus. Now, Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He didn't walk around with Jesus. He was one of the early adapters, church planters. We meet John Mark in Acts. We see him interacting uh, with the disciples at that point. He stayed with them in Antioch, and he was really close with Peter. And we believe that Mark probably got most of his account from interacting with Peter and wrote down the things that Peter said. And so we learn the story that Mark shares historically accurate from the disciples that he spent time with, especially the ones that made it all the way to Rome. And then we meet Luke. And I love Luke. Luke's one of my favorite guys because Luke is a Greek. He's not ethnically connected to this group of people who believe in Jesus. And he's a physician. He's a man of science. He's a doctor and he's a historian. And he has come to believe in Jesus and takes, takes it upon himself. If you read the opening of Luke, he goes to the eyewitnesses and verifies and checks their stories like a good historian. He goes person to person. He says, tell me what Jesus said there. He talks with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Tell me what that was like. He interviews and builds a case and consolidates information and generates this story for all of us to maintain. Luke does that work for us. And then John. John was one of the 12. John is probably my favorite to read because John interjects himself in the story in such fun ways. I relate to how John interjects himself in the story. John writes things like, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. If I'm writing down my story with Jesus, I'm adding some cool things about myself into the story so that all of posterity will go, yeah, he liked all of them, but he really loved me, right? That's John. John wants us to know about how personally we can connect with Jesus. And his story is very personal. And that's the story we're going to read today. But that's who John is. And if you're a Bible person, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to get there in just a moment. And some of you go, well, yeah, but those, those are stories that were written, you know, maybe hundreds of years after Jesus and just compiled and put together. And, and uh, this was all things that maybe just kind of got compiled in some way. And so I want to talk with you just about the history of what was going on post the resurrection for just a moment. Because there's some things that happen that are important historical things that we can look at. My favorite one is that there was a Caesar in Rome by the name of Nero, an emperor. And you've heard of Nero before because you had high school history. And you remember probably two things about Nero. And the first thing you remember about Nero is that on his watch in AD 64, all of Rome burned. Yes, on his watch in AD 64, all of Rome burned. Now, this is about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So within 30 years, 1,500 miles away in Rome, Rome burns down. Now, here's some things you can know about Nero that are just fun facts. He took, uh, he took over as emperor at about, about age 16. He was not well-liked at all. In fact, uh, history tells us that as Rome burned, it's likely that he played the, like the lute or the lyre or the fiddle or whatever he played. He was like a musician. Because he was so unliked, the Senate would tell him, you know, hey, go out into the crowds and play music and be relatable and engage and people will like you, right? And so that was his move. And so Rome catches on fire and it burns down. Now, 
why does Rome burn down? That's a mystery of history. But here's what we do know. He blames it on a specific group. This is the second thing you know about Nero. Rome burns, and he blames who? He blames the Christians. He blames the Christians. Why is that significant? Because 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there are hundreds, not even just hundreds, thousands of Christians in Rome 1,500 miles away from where Jesus had been crucified. That means within 30 years. These folks have not, we're still 300 years away from the Bible being compiled into a book. 300 years before we have the scriptures compiled into a book, we have hundreds and then thousands of Christians all across the known world. Enough that Nero said, hey, this place burned down. Here's why I think it burned down, by the way. After it burned down, he was able to completely rebuild Rome and put new roads in and build the houses right and get things in rows and build a new palace. And here's the thing. It's the same thing we need to do with Piala. There's no way to get north to south, right? We need a massive fire or something so that we can build a new road so Meridian isn't so locked up every day, right? Nero recognized the road system and the infrastructure was a nightmare for the growth and he lit the place up and then he was able to rebuild it, but he had to have a scapegoat. And his scapegoat were the Christians. And not only were there enough of them that it made sense, they were so well known for being radical in their behavior. They were crazy about how they loved and treated one another. They were self-sacrificing. They were completely committed to the Christ story. So that when he said, hey, either deny or die, we know through history, thousands of martyrs under Nero, we know he fed them to wild animals and crucified them. Within 30 years, why is that significant? Because history tells us and historians tell us that it takes between 60 and 80 years for a story to become like a myth, like a legend. And the reason it takes that long is people have to die first. It has to be grandpa told me this story to my dad who told it to me and the telephone thing has to start happening, right? For the story to kind of expand. But we know within 30 years, not only are there thousands of believers, they believe so firmly that they're willing to face death for their beliefs, brutal death at the hands of Rome for their beliefs. The persecution of Christians breaks out everywhere. Why? Because they heard the story from the source. And some of them had met Jesus on the other side of the grave. So let me tell you the story before we get to John chapter 20, because I got to give you the backstory. Now, in order to give you the whole backstory, I'd have to probably read you the entire Bible. Because everything that's happened in history up to this point is pointing to this moment. But I'll just give you two angles <clears throat> of backstory that will hopefully help it make sense. The two things you need to know. Number one, there's a group of people called the Israelites. And they all point to a common ancestor named Abraham. And Abraham had a relationship with God where he received some promises from God. And the primary promise that he got from God was that his descendants would be a great nation. And as a great nation, they would be a nation that blessed other nations. Now, this is an incredible promise because at this time, actually at this time, it's uncommon for nations to intentionally go out and bless other nations. We conquer other nations, but we don't bless other nations. And so for this subculture to have in their DNA that God was going to create in them a nation that was designed to be a blessing to other nations is a pretty incredible promise. The second promise that you need to know that was a couple thousand years in the making up until this point is that they were believing that they were waiting for a coming king who was going to lead them to this era where they would become the kind of nation that was a blessing nation for everybody else. They were waiting for a Messiah, a coming king. So with those two promises kind of hanging over all of the rest of their story, we pick up the story in the New Testament. And we pick up the story and we meet a guy. Well, see, in between all of those promises, there were many people who, who they thought might be that person, that Messiah who would lead them to that. They would be military leaders or religious leaders, and they would gain in popularity, and then something would happen. They would die. And then when they died, people realized, oh, well, I guess you can't be Messiah because you died and we didn't get all the promises of God. 
And so they had this cycle of potential messiahs and potential leaders, and then they would die, and then they would start the cycle over again. So we're in a rotation of this cycle as we walk into the story here. And there's a guy who shows up on the scene, and he's a wild man. He's got wild hair. He lives out in the wilderness, and he eats bugs and raw honey. And he shouts at people who walk by a very specific message. He says, hey, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And instead of thinking he's crazy, people start listening to him. And his name is John. And you know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And people go to him to hear this message that God's kingdom is near and that they should repent, which means change their behavior and start living like the kingdom of God is close and not far away. And many, and, and sometimes we get a picture that it's smaller than it is, but thousands of people are coming out to see and hear John. And they're getting baptized. And it's creating this momentum. So the religious leaders of this time have to investigate this guy because he's getting too popular. And they go out into the wilderness and they meet John. And they're like, hey, are you one of those Messiah claimers? Who are you supposed to be? And he's like, nah, I'm not that. And they're like, whoo, because you smell and you're out in the wilderness and you don't look like a military leader. This is, you're, you know, you're scraggly and eating bugs. He goes, but I'm preparing the way. And then after John, here comes Jesus. And Jesus breaks onto the scene and he goes and interacts with John and John baptizes him. And from that moment on, Jesus takes the scene as the primary figure of history. He becomes incredibly popular with messages that are absolutely counterculture. He says things like, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says things like, if someone asked you to go a mile with them, go with them two miles. Be generous. He says things like, bless those that persecute you and pray for those that are your enemies. He starts a narrative that's so countercultural, it starts rocking things. But not only is the narrative countercultural, there are actual demonstrations of power that go along with this. And people begin to see miracles. There's miracles of food and provision, there's miracles of healing. And he becomes incredibly popular, so popular that the religious community comes out to try to test him and see who this guy thinks he is. But every time they leave, it's like they touch the light socket. They get buzzed a little bit. It doesn't work well. They come with some clever scheme to try to uh, wrap him into some language that will debunk this myth that begins to build up that maybe he's the Messiah. But every time they leave, they feel scolded and scalded. And he says things to them like, you brood of vipers. That's a harsh if you're in charge. So they start plotting and planning to undermine him by fake news. They start leaking stories that his authority is demonic authority and not godly authority, that he's crazy, but he just gains more and more popularity. And then suddenly the unthinkable happens. A guy named Lazarus, who's popular, wealthy, and known in town, dies. And his friends and family are friends of Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and people who went to Lazarus' funeral, who knew that the body stinketh, according to the King James, see Jesus walk to a tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up from the grave. Everything changes from this moment. The religious authorities can't handle this. This kind of power and authority is too great for them. It has too many implications. You see, in their time, in their system, they essentially controlled the Senate. And they were the, the, the uh, leading authorities for their communities. And this guy was too popular and too powerful. So they come up with a plot. And their plan is to get him to admit to being the Messiah before a Roman authority, because here's the thing, Rome's in charge. And Rome, you can't mess with Rome. When Rome's in charge, they're all the way in charge. So if you're in Roman control, you don't get to become a king. You don't get to become a leader. You don't even get to walk into your house and be like, I'm the king of this castle. A Roman centurion will be like, we're the king of your castle now. Rome didn't allow that. So they were able to get him to confess that in fact he was the Messiah. And because of that, Rome found him guilty of sedition and crucified him. 
Now, here's the thing you have to know about the crucifixion. It was an extremely effective way to kill somebody. Painful, 100% accurate. When Jesus was crucified, up until that moment, all of the popularity and all of the followers and all of the potential was rolling along and building and mounting, and then he dies. And this is a people group who have heard stories and seen popular leaders come and go. And each one of them died. And the story was always the same. After the death, they recognized he wasn't the guy they thought he was. And on the day that Jesus died, there was not a single Jesus follower left. They all jumped off the ship. They all jumped ship. They all, they all disliked him on Facebook or unfollowed him on Twitter. They all, they, all, they all removed themselves, come on now, from the Jesus train. All of them. The scripture's clear of that. And so when we pick up the story, you have a group of people who are dis, disenfranchised, disappointed, feel like somehow they've been hoodwinked. Because here's the problem. You can't make the claims that Jesus made and then he dies. You can't say I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the father except through me and then die. You can't say I am the father. I and the father are one. I do everything the father wants me to do and then die. You can't say I have the authority to forgive sins and then die. You can't be the Messiah and then die. And so their entire framework is broken. And they're looking at their last three years of walking around with Jesus, and they're like, ah, we fell for fake news. And that's the platform that we walk into in John chapter 20. That's where they're at. That's where their heads are at. And it's important that you understand that because these people were humans. They lived in this time and they interacted with Jesus. They knew what he looked like. They knew what he smelled like. They knew what his voice sounded like. They were friends and relationally connected to Jesus and their world has fallen apart because he's dead. And then we pick up the story in John chapter 20. And it says early on the first day of the week. Now, this is important. Because the last day of the week is the Sabbath. And so they weren't allowed to do any work or do anything on the Sabbath. And so now it's the first day of the week, which is Sunday. While it was still dark is important because the Sabbath was from sundown to sunrise. And so while it was still dark means the sun was just starting to come up. So Mary's getting an early start here. It's technically still the end of the Sabbath. She's like kind of fudging with the Sabbath rules here. <clears throat> and it says, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, we got to talk about Mary Magdalene for a second. Because this is a fascinating person for John to point out was the first person at the tomb. Who is Mary Magdalene? We meet her in Luke chapter 8. And we meet her in a group of people who begin following Jesus after he heals some people and casts out some demons. And Luke, the historian who interviews people, who talked to people like Mary, who connected with them, says, Mary Magdalene was crazy. In Luke chapter 8, she was possessed by no less than seven demons, he says. And Jesus cast those demons out, and Mary became a follower of Jesus. Now, whatever you believe about demonic possession, at the very least, you would have to say that the historians of that time agreed she either had some kind of mental issues or was at least manipulated by a demonic presence. So what does that mean? That's a horrible first person to introduce to the most important story that's ever been told. The other thing you should realize is she's a woman. In this culture, at this time, we just got to be honest. This is a very misogynistic culture. Rome's in control. The Hebrew culture has an undercurrent of misogyny. And they don't accept a woman's testimony the way we would accept a woman's testimony. It is a horrible move if you are making up a story to interject and begin the story with Mary Magdalene. Unless it's true. Because if you're making up the story, you omit Mary's presence all the way. Mary's presence is a problem for first century believers. Unless it's true. Now here's some things we gotta see. She gets to the tomb and she sees that the stone was removed. Verse two, I love this. She's in good shape. 
So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Here's John, the one that Jesus loved. John's awesome. And says, hey, they have taken the Lord. Who's they? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She doesn't know where Jesus is, but here's what she's deducing. Someone's taking him, taking him. Who would take him? Well, he had a lot of enemies, political enemies, religious enemies. And it would be reasonable for her to assume that they may want to take and steal his body so that his tomb doesn't become like a shrine. Because we have a tendency to do that. When very important people die, we build monuments around their tombs. I've been to Martin Luther King Jr.'s tomb and seen the, the flames that burn around there. And it's cool. I mean, it's cool. And you remember and you recognize the things that like, we do that. And they had no desire to keep this Jesus character in history. They wanted to wipe him out of history. So Mary's assumption is that they've probably stolen the body so that we don't have a place that we can go to and say, this is how we remember that time when Jesus was here. That's important to recognize. Here's the thing you also have to recognize. She wasn't expecting a resurrection. Nobody was. If they were expecting a resurrection early in the morning before the sun come up, there would have been a crowd outside the tomb. And it would have looked something like this. Five, four, three, two, one. Out would kick Jesus. Electric guitar. You know, like wings. It'd be awesome. If I'm making up a story, that's the story I tell. I say, hey, we were all outside the tomb because we knew he was stronger than the grave. That's not the story John tells. He says Mary went there. Why did Mary even go there? My best guess, she's wanted to rewrap the body because she had saw a couple days before, a couple dudes had done it pretty quickly. And if you've ever seen a guy wrap anything... You just know it's not the same quality or attention to detail that you might hope for if something was really important. So Mary shows up to do that. She runs to them, to Peter and John. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciples start for the tomb and both were running. And I love this. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John wants all of history to know I'm in better shape than Peter. <laughs> Not only did Jesus love me more, I also am a better athlete. Such a guy move. He bent over, John did, and looked in the strips of linen line there, but he didn't go in. Verse six. <clears throat> then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, and the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, the word saw is really important there because there's a Greek word for just seeing something, and that's the word vlepo, right? And that just means he looks at it. But the word that John uses here is a different word, and you'll recognize it when I say it, the word theoreo, which is the where we get the word theorized. And the reason John uses that word is he says, Peter went in, and he kind of like a CSI investigator investigates the scene. It's not he just went in and looked and saw something. It's he went in and investigated. Why would Peter go in and investigate? He's not expecting the tomb to be empty. And when he sees the grave clothes, there's cognitive dissonance. It doesn't make sense to him. Why would someone steal a body but first strip it naked? It wouldn't be a Jewish person doing that. The dishonor for touching that dead body would be, it didn't make sense. Why leave the grave clothes that were scented, that were sprinkled with, with, uh, with uh, whatever makes things smell good? Yeah, perfume and all that stuff. Those things were valuable at that time. Not only were it valuable, if I'm going to haul a dead round, body around, I don't want it to stinketh. It's been three days. So why would I do that? So Peter's trying to assess this scene, why do I tell you that? Because sometimes I think we believe back in time that those first century Christians were just not very intellectual, not very intuitive. They were just easily hoodwinked by sleight of hand or 
overstated the miracles or somehow, but you have to get a picture here. There was a lot of thinking going on in the scene and John paints a very clear picture for us. They don't understand what is going on. And if I'm writing the story, at some level, I at least have a hero of the story. At least Thomas got it, or at least I got it. Somebody got it. But he says, we were all flabbergasted. And Peter sizes it up. And his conclusion is not, Jesus is risen. He doesn't make that conclusion. Verse 8 says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. and He saw and believed. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I love this expression. I heard it from another pastor, and I thought it was great. Essentially this, nobody expected nobody, right? They went to the tomb, but nobody expected no body. I heard it said one time that the Christian faith, it's more than thinking and reasoning. It's more than just thinking and reasoning, but it's certainly not less than that. Certainly not less than that. These folks did not leave their brains behind at the door when they walked in. None of them expected that. Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's done enough running. She's just burnt out. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? We find out here that angels are not emotionally sensitive. <laughs> Nobody who's been around women for any amount of time would lead with that <laughs> kind of phrase. Woman, why are you crying? Mary says, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turns around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. She's now in the center of these three individuals. Verse 15, woman, he said, and this is Jesus, why are you crying? What is it you're looking for? And I love this. It says, thinking that he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Hold on just a second right here. This is a great picture. Mary is looking in the tomb. She's crying. She's sobbing. She sees two figures in there. She's not processing how they got in there. She's been running around. She's out of breath. She's just like, the tomb is empty. Who are these two guys? She sees someone behind her. We don't know why she doesn't recognize Jesus. Maybe she didn't spend time checking out his face. Maybe he looked different. Maybe she was just so emotionally spent that there was no recognition that happened in that moment. But she assumes he's the gardener. Now, I'm tempted because I'm brown to insert some joke about Jesus being the gardener. But I'll just let that go. We can all feel the awkwardness of that together. Come on. I'm tempted to go there, but I won't go there. Come on, Mary, the gardener. But here's what we know. He interacts with her and she's broken and she's emotional and she does not recognize that that's who it is. And then finally in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here's what I love. Jesus doesn't go, it is I, <laughs> right? He doesn't have a reveal moment. He doesn't like, you know, step out from behind the tree and just be like, ha, gotcha. <laughs> Send her over in a heart attack. He says, Mary. And when she hears the words, Mary, the word Mary, when she hears her name, her identity. Here's the thing you have to catch. Jesus knows us. And when we're known by him, there is something internal and deep and powerful and freeing and releasing and recognizable. And he knows her. He knew her from the moment he said, get out of her, you bunch of demons. She's mine. He knew her all the way through. She's one of his. And when she heard her name, lights came on. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. She turned to him, cried out that. And then uh, verse 17, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. So John doesn't say that she grabbed onto him, but she must have grabbed onto him. For I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene went back to the disciples. She ran back to town with the news. 
I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that she had said to her. And he, uh, that he had said these things to her. Now here's what's important to catch. They don't believe her. They don't believe her. I want you to catch that. They don't believe her. She has seen the risen Lord and her testimony is not enough to convince the closest inner circle of Jesus people that this event has actually happened. They have known her since the demon possession. They have walked with her. They have seen her. They know who she is, but her words and an empty tomb are not enough to convince the closest people to Jesus. It's not enough. They're still skeptical. How do we know? Because verse 19 says, on the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were together. They still had the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus has just been crucified. His body has been stolen in their minds. And so they're expecting retaliation to snuff out this uprising of Jesus' people. So they're at home with the doors locked. They sent the women out to check on things. Great job, fellas. If they believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, the door would be open. They'd be outside. They'd be like your irritating neighbor shooting off fireworks. And you're like, what holiday is it? It's late. Stop shooting off your fireworks. But they're not. They're home behind closed doors and afraid. And it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Listen, if you're making up a story, you don't and start with Mary. And you certainly don't admit that you're hiding in the house while you sent the women out to make sure everything was okay. And you don't admit that you didn't believe them. And then here comes Jesus. Here's what I love about the story. They're in the house and the door is closed. Jesus has a real flesh and blood body. They get to touch it in just a moment. But suddenly he's just in the house with them. Now, I don't know about you, but once I lock my doors... No one else gets to suddenly be in the house with me. And I love that Jesus is like, hey, peace. Peace, bro. It's cool. Don't freak out. Because my expectation would be whatever their version of is, that's what should have happened if suddenly their doors are locked and here's a person inside that's appeared inside their house. So Jesus is cool that way. He's like, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed because they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. They recognize that he's not a ghost. He's not a shared hallucination. His hands and his side are scarred. They can see that it's him. And then he puts them at ease. And he says, now your job is to be sent the way I have been sent. Verse 22, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. That's a fascinating point that we could spend a lot of time on. Here's my best answer of what he means there. He's saying, I have now given you my mission. And you've seen how I do my mission. From the cross, I look out at people who have abused me and manipulated and have distorted the truth. And I offer forgiveness. And now you get to go be those people. And if they receive you, then they receive it. And if they reject you, then they reject it. But that's your job. You're on mission now. You're on mission now. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, he wasn't there when Jesus came. And I love this because John's like, yeah, that Thomas guy. <laughs> See how he personalizes it? Thomas missed the whole thing. Thomas missed the whole thing. Now, here's the thing. We give Thomas a bad rap. But if you missed the whole thing, if all your friends were locked in a house and you were out and you came home, and they're like, dude, the door was locked and then Jesus was in here. He breathed on us and said, go start forgiving people. What would you say? You're like, ah, you know, punked, where's candid camera? Like, right? Your, your fake news detector would be going off. And Thomas is skeptical. He gets a bad rap. You would be skeptical. And here's Jesus, okay, walking through that skepticism. And here's John telling us the truth that Thomas was skeptical. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks on his hands, unless I put my fingers where the nail holes were, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. I have to experience it or I'm not going to believe it. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came, special trip for him, stood among them and said, peace, relax. 
And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach your hand out, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, here's the thing I want you to catch. None of their expectations were met in this entire story. All of them had a picture of who Jesus is or was, and he constantly defied their expectations. Some expected him to be a military leader and he defied their expectations. Some, his family expected him to behave a different way and they defied their expectations. At the very least, they expected him to, to, to behave like a, a proper religious leader, but he did crazy things. Like he partied with irreligious people. He went to weddings where they ran out of booze because they were so drunk and he was like, oh, let me turn this water into wine so you guys can keep on partying. He never met their expectations. He always exceeded their expectations. He didn't even stay dead. That's a basic expectation. Stay dead. But something happens here in this moment in history. Paul later tells us that he appeared to hundreds and that you know who those people are. You've met them. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about them. Something has happened here in history because this disbelieving, expectation-having group of people have suddenly met a risen Jesus and everything changes. They go from cowards hiding in their room to willing to die for their faith because something happened and they saw. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't know, something else could have happened. Okay, well, then I challenge you to give me a conversation point. What could possibly happen that would take a group of men and women from a place of absolute disbelief to belief, not just belief, but radical belief to the point where they were willing to die for it? This eclectic, diverse group, socioeconomically diverse, ethnically diverse, educationally diverse group of people, they all saw something and they believed. And when they saw that death, because up until this point, come on now, death had been undefeated. Death was undefeated. It was the great thing to fear. Why are they in the house with the door locked? Because they fear death. They've seen crucifixions. They know that Rome knows how to prolong and torturously kill you. They're afraid of death. And suddenly they leave this moment and they're unafraid of death. Why? Because if the person who conquered death comes back and says, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. I got this. Your confidence level against death goes like this. If you're skeptical to the point where you say, I'm not gonna believe unless I get my hands in it, unless it makes sense to me till I get to do it. And then he meets those expectations. You go, okay, well, he's got this. Well, he's got this. You see, if someone has the power over death and rises from the grave and then promises you hope after that, maybe that's someone that you can put your hope in. Joe, would you come and kind of tell us the story of Easter? This is what we do at Easter. Little girls in fancy dresses, colorful eggs, and church. At this time each year, we fill our Easter baskets with that annoying grass tinsel stuff that gets on everything and everywhere. And we stand in ridiculous long lines and pay ridiculous amounts of money to have our children take pictures with the Easter bunny that nightmares are made of. We spend time with friends and family, we go to church, we praise and we sing, and we hear those famous words from scripture that say, he is risen. But I'm going to challenge you this morning with this question. Why? Why do we do all of that? If we're being honest, some of us will say it's for tradition's sake. It's because it's what we've always done. It's because it's what we're supposed to do, right? Or maybe even it's because so-and-so made me. So go with me for a moment into a completely different place and time. A world that's stained with abuse and evil, where war, war and violence are pouring out. And while you've been pretty successful at staying out of the mix, something has gone terribly wrong. And that evil has ended up on your doorstep and is calling your name. Imagine that you are literally hiding with your children, desperate to keep them safe in the dark room, 
and outside of the door you hear the coming end. You picture the shadow that lines the bottom of the door frame, and you know that they're there. And maybe you whisper something to your child, like, it's going to be okay, or I love you, or I'm sorry. But you know that there's nothing that you can do because you're out of options, and you're out of ways to protect your child, and you're out of time. Perhaps you pray or beg, all the while knowing that whatever evil is waiting for you on the doorstep is too great to, to let that person stop the horrific acts that they intend to do to you and your child. And then the door opens. Now, I've asked you to go to this place with me to imagine the fear and the powerlessness that you would feel for a reason. And it's probably not the reason that you'd think. It's because in order for you to get something this morning out of this service, in order for something to really impact you, you have to feel something. In order to break up the busyness of egg hunts and chocolate bunnies, you have to feel something. I bet that if you truly went there with me and you imagined the excruciating fear that a moment like that would bring, that you're feeling something right now. And I hate to say it, but that imaginary situation probably made you feel more than a story from 2,000 years ago that you've heard over and over and over again has made you feel lately. Why? Because the story I asked you to imagine was believable. In the world that we live in today, people are actually experiencing those kinds of nightmares. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, or just a decent human being, you know the lengths that you would go to protect an innocent child. You feel something because you can relate. The story of Jesus' death seems so far away. It's been told so many times and in so many ways that the facts seem questionable. But the fact is that some of us look at the greatest story ever told as more of a fairy tale or a myth as if it started with once upon a time. So imagine with me now, if you will, the people of that time. Put yourself in their shoes. The ones beaten down and terrified for the future and the lives of their loved ones. The ones so oppressed by their government that a wrong look or action could get them stoned to death in the street. Just like when we imagined the fake scenario a moment ago, that was the real deal for the people back then. But then a hope came. A man who did things and said things and lived things that no one else had. But just when you started to believe in him, just when you dared to believe him, they killed him. And with his flesh, they ripped away everything that you'd come to hope in and truly believe that he would change. And then for two days after the crucifixion, you're left to reconcile how this person, who you dared to believe in, could just die. Just die and leave you to cower in the corner with your loved ones. But then he came back. He died, yet he came back. And all that you'd believed was not only confirmed to you, but it changed you. Not only did you believe his truth, but you started to accept it. I mean, what else would you do? What could you do? You would do what they did. You would inherit it. You would adopt it. It would become part of your identity. You'd share it, because the fear that you'd always had when you boil it down is really just a fear of death. It's a fear of suffering. It's a fear of being stoned to death in the street. But if Jesus can conquer death, if he can arrest even that, then what is there to be afraid of? You would no longer be afraid. The story of Jesus conquering death is a story of conquering fear in a broken world of knowing that there is something so much greater to be feared. And that is what Easter is about. 
It's about acknowledging an all-powerful, freedom-giving Savior who is who he says he is, who promised to do something and be something, and then he kept it. Do you believe it? Have you inherited it? Have you adopted it? Have you shared it? Would you die for this truth? Jesus Christ lived and died. There's plenty of evidence for that. But then he came back to life. And if you believe that, truly down to the pit of your stomach, know that that's the truth, then you would share it too. And that is what we do at Easter. Would you stand with me? I'm going to have some ushers come by, and they're going to pass out some baskets. And inside of those baskets are are these little clips. They're called carabiners. Now, the reason that these are important, or one, these are more like the keychain quality ones, so don't put your life in it. But, But the picture I want you to catch is that when they believed the story, when they met Jesus, they did something powerful, and they connected their hopes. They connected their faith. They connected their dreams. They connected their story. They connected their lives to his story. And as they did that, they experienced freedom, hope, and wholeness beyond anything the world could ever seen. And they literally changed the world. So these are coming around. You can grab one. And we're going to sing an incredible song here. And maybe you know it, maybe you don't. It's called Death Was Arrested. But it simply tells and proclaims the truth that we were alone, that we were lost, that there was not a potential for us to conquer death until God, who so loved the world, sent his one and only son for us to pay the price to defeat death for you and for me. And so if you know the words, I'd encourage you to sing. If you want to just read the words and, and, and follow along as you're ready to sing, sing. But we're going to just declare this truth as we close these service today. Hallelujah. So I gave you this carabiner, this clip. And the picture I just wanted you to get is that something happened. And an entire generation of people, right after the cross, not hundreds of years later, not thousand years later, right after that, began to connect their hopes and their faith to Jesus. Why? Because they had seen him and because they knew that if he had that power, then nothing was impossible for them. And I think maybe today this Easter story and memory might just be a time for you to address some of the questions that you've had. Maybe it's just a time to remember that for me and in my life, the most powerful, impactful thing I can do is connected to something. Now listen, when I first connected my life to Jesus, I didn't have all my answers yet. I was still figuring it out. I had a lot of questions. I still have a lot of questions that I walked through. But I needed something to connect to and myself wasn't enough. And so here's the thing. While I've been arguing that this case for Jesus makes sense, our relationship with God doesn't start in our mind. It starts in our heart. When we take a step of faith and invite him, to occupy that space. And so this is my simple invitation to you. Maybe you've done this a hundred times. Maybe today's your first opportunity. But if you need to take a step of just being faithful and saying, you know what, God, I know I'm here because it's Easter. And I know it's Sunday and we got all kinds of plans and it's three minutes after and I wish this guy would stop talking. But I can't leave this place without acknowledging that I need to be connected. My life anchored to your promises. And if that's you, would you just hold the little carabiner up? Just as an outward sign, yeah, that's me. And I'm going to pray. And then listen, next week, we're going to launch into a series called Address the Mess. And we're just going to talk about the fact that it gets messy and that messy people follow Jesus and that we all have our stuff. And we're just going to be real and authentic. And we're going to walk into that story that Jesus' expectation it always, always breaks from expectation. And sometimes we have an expectation that our stuff is perfect and all put together before we come to Jesus. And that certainly isn't the case here. So God, I thank you so much. I thank you for being willing to come on a rescue mission in history for us. I thank you. We read at the opening of the service that, that it was a planned 
event from the beginning of time that you would come for us, even in our mess, that you know us fully. You know every little thing. You know how many hairs I used to have. You know how many hairs I have today. You know the, the, the details of my life, my thoughts, my actions, my behavior. You know all of that, and you still, still want relationship with me because you love us. Thanks that we're loved because we're loved. And I pray that today we would anchor our lives to the rock, the truth of your love for us. And I pray today would just be a step. I pray we'd take the next step. We'd come back and begin to get our questions answered. I pray we'd sign up and go to the, the, the movie and, and, uh, and, and have an experience there asking our questions. I pray we'd come to the visitor's lunch and get to know people and connect. And we just continue to explore because maybe, just maybe, this event that literally split time in half, we call this 2017 this year because people believed something incredible had happened. And we believe it. And because of that, we have hope in every circumstance. Because of that, death isn't the final say and doesn't have authority in our lives. And we go from this place free, connected to the heart of our Savior. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.